Coming up on this week's show, Sonic and Mario ported to the Amstrad and the Spectrum. My favourite gaming movie has been tampered with. And we're joined in the studio by the mother of Lara Croft, Heather Gibson. This week's show is brought to you by Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 198, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to this week's show. Now, before we get into it, I should pre-warn you that Joe has had a, a kind of monster in the oh. car on the way over tonight. So, uh, I was like, Where's, oh, what is, what's he saying about me this time? <laughs> and he's been practicing metal lyrics, uh, screaming in the car. <coughs> Anything could happen on this week's show. Anything could happen. Yeah, I have had a, had a kind of monster. I've been screaming like a monster in the car as well because I've got a gig tomorrow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you might need to rein it in there because we do have a guest coming in the studio this we week. We do, we do. And I don't want to slap her while I'm getting all animated in my arms <laughs> and stuff. Well, this is a guest we actually met over the weekend. Now, we went to... A really cool little event, um, not far from where we record the podcast, in Derby. Yeah. And this was a, um, a cinema called uh, Quad. It's like a really big venue, a couple of cinemas in there and an exhibition area. And this was an event called Ramfest. Yeah, this was an awesome little event. So they had the legendary Rob Hubbard there, who came and did an absolutely amazing talk about C64 music, but also the kind of orchestral music that we've been covering on this show. And you may have seen us sharing a glass of wine with him on our Instagram and yeah, Facebook. On yeah, it was great fun. And Name it was droppers. also <laughs> in partnership with the guys from Retro Computer Museum yep. in Leicester. And they had a Tomb Raider panel there. And this is where we met Heather. And I just thought Heather's stories were so amazing. We need to get her on to tell us all about the development of kind of Tomb Raider 1. You know, she invented the Croft Manor. And the level design as well, Tomb Raider 1 and 2. Yep. And we actually find out in the interview, and that's coming up soon, she actually had quite a big role in the kind of characteristics of Lara Croft. She was the original voice of Lara Croft. Yeah, yeah. So this is a really interesting interview, and uh, I'm just really excited. Yeah, I so think uh, what was really fantastic as well is she was really on board. I love that she's come down into the actual studio as well. Really, really, really enthusiastic about it. Yeah, because I mean, we record this show in Nottingham. Derby's about half an hour away. So, you know, she made the trip over on a, on a cold November a Wednesday evening to sit in the <laughs> studio with us over a cup of tea and share some of these amazing stories about a time at companies like Rare and Core and obviously most of the interview is going to be about Tomb Raider because you know, it has to be. So if you're a fan of Tomb Raider, hang around for this one. You're going to find out some really interesting stories. Heather Gibson coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. And we do have some great news stories to talk about. Before we get into that though, let's give a huge thank you to our very good supporter and it's so amazing that these guys are back on board with the Retro Hour podcast. This is our friends at the legendary Retro Gamer magazine. Now, Retro Gamer, of course, anyone that listens to our show needs to read Retro Gamer, the only magazine dedicated to all aspects of retro gaming. They bring you backstage, tell you everything that happened behind the scenes of your favourite games, chat to the developers, find out what the biggest names in the industry have got to say about the games they made and the legacy they've left, and also get to find out facts you didn't know about the games you grew up playing. Now, it's a really good time that Retro Gamer are on board with us because it's a rather special monumental occasion for Retro Gamer. They've just released issue 200. Yeah. Oh, my God, this issue is epic. Like, first off, you get a free CD, yeah. and that's always nice with a magazine. But as we're talking about these orchestral versions of video games, this is a soundtrack, very orchestral, of Turrican, and it's actually done by Chris Holzbeck. So this is like an exclusive little kind of CD, audio CD, and then you get this huge poster as well, which is a really cool 
piece of custom pixel art that seems to have every single system in there possible. <laughs> so you can spend your time hunting through, finding the little references and stuff. Well, issue 200 really is a celebration of the entire history of video games, going back to like the early 60s. Yeah, this entire issue is just one massive celebration of just like the complete history of gaming from, you know, those early kind of computers, then to the consoles. Absolutely love it. One of my favourite articles here in the middle is the Revenge of the 90s consoles, where it just kind of goes through, you know, just this resurgence of like, you know, Nintendo came back, Sega came back. It's a little bit about the Jaguar, even the Wonder Swan, stuff like that. Absolutely amazing issue. And they've interviewed so many people. Nolan Bushnell's in there, Trip Hawkins. Oh, yeah, it's like a complete plethora of absolutely amazing interviews and you know you don't realize how many amazing interviews they've had until you look at it in this kind of timeline form so make sure you get hold of this the 200th special issue of retro gamer magazine the essential guide to classic games and of course we've hooked you up with an amazing offer don't we always do that as always you don't get these offers anywhere else now listen this is what we want to give you if you subscribe today to retro gamer magazine you will get a free 8-bit dough controller of your choice. Now, we've talked about these on the show before, and, and these are these really amazing, nicely made retro style controllers. And these are Bluetooth, so these work with stuff like you know, your PC, your Mac, Linux, Android, even on the Switch as well. Yeah, I found that really interesting that they're compatible to the Switch, yeah. it's amazing. And they've got stuff like NES, GameCube, Mega Drive, Game Boy editions that you can pick from as well. Mm-hmm. So, this is the offer we've got for you. Now, claim this right now while it's on. You can get six months worth of Retro Gamer magazine for just £25 and a free beautifully styled Bluetooth controller worth up to 30 quid, completely free. So this is what you need to do. Open a new browser right now. Tap this in, myfavoritemagazines.co.uk forward slash retro 8-bit dough. So that is retro number 8 B-I-T-D-O myfavoritemagazines.co.uk forward slash retro 8-bit dough and I'll put that link in our show notes as well. Thanks to our very good friends at Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. Now, lots of stories doing the rounds this week. We'll get into in a sec. Let's also give a huge thank you to our loyal supporters as well. Every week, we roll out the red carpet on the Retro Hour Hall of Fame to those people who found it in their hearts to show a little bit of love to the Retro Hour podcast and allow us to keep doing this show for you every week and help us with the running costs of the show. And for making a donation of any amount, we accept it by PayPal through our website at theretrohour.com or you can just do PayPal at theretrohour.com from your app. You will get a mention in a future episode in the Hall of Fame. Like this week... Niall Bullets. Resourceful Restoration. Michael Verdi. And Scott Marsden. Who all made donations into the running of the show. Honestly, guys, that's so appreciated. And around this time of year when... Because uh, we started the show in January, didn't we? About five years ago soon. So all our renewal costs are coming up soon. So this is very well-timed. If you'd like to help us out and throw something into the tip, tip jar, you'll find that on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, before Heather joins us in the studio to get some never-heard-before stories about games like Tomb Raider 1 and 2... Let's talk about a few of the headlines that have been making the uh, the blogs and the magazines and the videos in the world of retro gaming this week, including a Pac-Man-inspired maze that might give you nightmares. Yeah, so I found this one, stumbled across this one. So in Florida, across the pond, they've set up a life-size Pac-Man-inspired maze where you literally get to run around as Pac-Man run around the maze with the staff who are dressed up as the ghosts chasing you. (laughs) You get free lives and they actually run around after you in the maze at night and it just looks just a complete hybrid of absolutely fantastic, absolutely terrifying at the same time. Have you seen that rubbish film called Pixels? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that that Pac-Man thing in there where they turn the streets into Pac-Man game, I thought that was the best thing about the film, but (laughs) this is cool that it's really interactive and... 
Counter-Strike, we had uh, Min Leon. Yeah. And yeah. they'd actually recreated dust in real life, a Counter-Strike map. So it's good to see that they're creating these kind of game worlds in yeah. reality. It's pretty mad, isn't you, it? You know, actually, think about Pac-Man, and actually the premise of that game is pretty terrifying. You're yeah. getting chased around by these ghosts. It's like, <laughs> through you know, through dead ends and everything, and it's... Um, it is actually, when you think about it, quite a terrifying concept. Munching pills in a dark room yeah. as well. So, so, so do you think they'd have, like, individual personalities, you know, like Pinky and Blinky, didn't they yeah. have individual... Yeah. One will be faster. That's interesting, yeah. Be... It, doesn't, it doesn't say that, like, it doesn't, you know, will they be... I forget the, color, the you know the correct colours for it, but yeah, like, like the pink one always does the same route, doesn't it? And one of them actually chases you. They'll so probably the... train the ghosts. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it would be that authentic, but it's reopening on October 10th, 2020. Um, and what I think is really cool is it's only $15. Obviously, it's in America. Uh, it's only $15 a ticket, which is quite interesting because usually these kind of things are really expensive. Yeah, yeah. So and it looks like they even have like a huge celebration of Pac-Man, like a festival. They have all the arcade machines That's set up cool. with bottles of beer and everything like that so you know you get to run around and everything then you go have your lemonade to recover and after and that then, apparently they've got like an 80s theme pixel room you yeah exactly stuff, so. you know and they've got all the games cabinet set up so it looks really cool so if you want to find out more about that i'll shovel link in our show notes at theretrohour.com and you need to check out these videos now these have been all over um facebook actually this week i've seen it in a load of groups the first one i saw is the you know the gx 4000 mm. now for people that might not be familiar is, with is that this system, the amstrad machine this was Amstrad's attempt at making a home video game console. Um, I think it came out, I want to say, 1990 or thereabouts. Mm. And it was that era where, you know, Commodore tried it as well with the Commodore 64 um, console that, you know, essentially just a version of their home computer. GS. Yeah. You know, it was, Amstrad did the same thing. It was essentially an Amstrad machine, took the keyboard off, put a cartridge slot on there as well, thought, that'll be enough. That'll compete with Sega and Nintendo. Obviously, as we know, massive flop. But it turns out now... There might actually be a game that you want to get on your uh, GX4000 because someone has ported Sonic the Hedgehog. This is awesome. We we all know that the Amstrad scene is absolutely kicking off with stuff that's happening at the moment. And it is really like a kind of underused system. You know, the fact that you can get Sonic running smoothly on it is fantastic. I think what's interesting about it is it's, you know, it's a port of Sonic the Hedgehog, but it's kind of like a a fan-made version of it. It looks like, it's weird because it looks, I want to say it looks better than the Master System versions of Sonic. Yeah. Um, But then at the same time, you can tell it's not got blast processing. (laughs) Uh, It is a little bit slower than the the Mega Drive version, but it does look quite cool. It does look pretty nice. Maybe it's closer to the Game Gear version. Yeah, you know what, that's, it it reminded me of that, but, um, it just it's weird because it just looks that little bit smoother and a little bit nicer than those yeah, versions. Yeah, and there's literally no parallax on the back, is there? <laughs> but, you know. Well, this was an 8-bit machine, you yeah, know. And, yeah. yeah, And this runs at full frame rate in a 50 hertz. Apparently, it's 40 colours in here as well. And uh, the fact they've got it running that well, and they're going to release this for the Amstrad GX4000 and the Amstrad Plus machines as well. And they reckon this is going to be a full game that's going to be out at the end of 2020. Wow. Now, the thing about it is, at the moment, you can kind of check out this preview. I'll put a video in, in the show notes. And as we know, Sega are normally quite good about fan projects. And I imagine that'll be left up and if people want to play it and download it. I can't imagine Sega are going to have a problem with it at all. Maybe not the same can be said about the next story, which is, (laughs) quite coincidentally, Mario has been ported to the Sinclair Spectrum. Now, check out this video that I'll also put in the show notes as well. Now, this is, it actually looks much better than I ever imagined it could. It is, you know, it's a work in progress at the moment. They've only done, like, a small bit of the game. But this essentially is Mario running 
on the ZX Spectrum. It's funny because they've still got Color Clash, which is yeah. really cool to see Mario <laughs> with a little bit of like green stuck on him. <laughs> yeah. I think what's really interesting about this one is it is it's slower. Yeah. But it's not like notably like, you know, you've got to watch it for a good 30 seconds to see the kind of like, obviously, the you know, the colors and the graphics are different. But to actually see that kind of difference in the gameplay with the, with the Sonic one, on the Amstrad, it's it's clear straight away. Okay, that's not Sonic on the Mega Drive. It's you know it doesn't play the same. Well, obviously this isn't clearly Mario on the Nintendo, but mm. it doesn't play too dissimilarly, like dissimilar. Sorry, to the actual Nintendo version, which I think is really funny. I mean, actually. obviously you haven't got the background colours and everything. No, it's yeah. all black. Um, yeah, yeah. Sound effects, you know. There we go. It does. It does seem a bit bare. But I guess if you think of other games like Jet Set Willy, how much stuff is going on at the screen at the same time, to get this smoothness, you're probably going to have to have it a bit kind of empty. Well, this is running at 50 frames a second. And it's got side-scrolling as well, which, you know, you think about that. I remember a lot of the old Specky games are kind of, they'd have side-scrolling, but it kind of redrawn, it was quite slow. And this does look as smooth as the NES version in terms of there's no, like, screen tearing or anything like that. So that's incredible. I mean, at the moment, there is um, a free download. It's, It's not a full game. We know when anyone tries to do stuff like this, Nintendo would generally issue a takedown the day yeah. after. So I wouldn't be surprised if this demo's gone by the time the show comes yeah. out. Just the way Nintendo roll. But um, maybe they can do something like Gianna Sisters back in the latest change of character a bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's a great engine here for a good game. Yeah, Next yeah. We're going to yeah. be talking about, oh, Gianna Sisters has come out on the, uh, the ZX Spectrum. <laughs> so you've got to check this video out. I mean, whether the, uh, the downloadable demo will still be available when the show comes out on Friday, I don't know. Uh, but we'll put a link to the video in our show notes as well. Now, while we're talking about Mario, um, Joe is very excited about this. Absolutely. Because Joe's favourite video game movie of all time actually not even video game your favourite film favourite film of all time Super Mario Brothers the movie you love that film <laughs> <laughs> alright great it's probably not your favourite film ever, but you are a fan of it yeah. I'm a fan of it I, I like to defend it I don't think it's a bad film uh, I take it for what it's worth but yeah 26 years later uh, a deleted scene from Super Mario Bros the movie Super Mario Brothers the movie has emerged online is it, <laughs> is it the Bob Hoskins nude scene it is. No, it's not. Um, that it's, hasn't surfaced yet. <laughs> that hasn't surfaced yet. No, interestingly, it's um, it's, it's kind of like a deleted missing scene in the middle of the film. Okay. Um, there's a bit where they're getting they're getting threatened to be de-evolved, and they push Cooper away, and they run away, and he slips over on some slime on the floor, and the slime. There's no explanation in the original film where that slime comes from. Now, I've seen there's things about the scripts and stuff like that, you know, in the past saying, oh, the slime, it's because if he de-evolved somebody, he showed them saying they'll turn them back into their primordial ooze and he's going to do the same to them unless they comply. So everybody know, like, people with on Earth, like, oh, yeah, this is this is what happens. But the actual scene has been found now. Um, it's quite a long scene, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, well, there's this video that's about 15 minutes long. And there is actually a website completely dedicated to the Super Mario Brothers movie, <laughs> smbmovie.com. And they spent years essentially uploading and cataloging everything you ever wanted to know and probably didn't want to know as well about this movie. But they've also found um, a tape that's 15 minutes longer than the cinematic release version mm. that features 50 minutes of extra footage that weren't in the movie. But interestingly, um, none of the video effects work's been done on these scenes. Okay, So, so yeah. they look a bit weird. But, I mean, there are some bits in here, especially that scene, which is this yeah. YouTube video here, and it shows you what happened. So I think, you know, even seeing stuff like that, I do always find it interesting, even movies you're not a huge fan of, but seeing kind of the kind of pre-production 
yeah. shooting and stuff. Yeah. I always find that quite interesting. I was watching a video the other day, and um, there's a lot of them for Ghostbusters. Oh, is there? Just little bits that they deleted, and like, you know, then with the proton packs, but there's no beams coming out of it because he had all the video <laughs> effects working. Just seeing that kind of, you know, on set, but yeah. without the effect, yeah. it's always a bit bizarre. Uh, but it's cool when stuff like this is, gets uncovered, I think. So. I remember getting a pirate copy of Wolverine. And yeah. it was like, you know, the film, and it was yeah. before they'd actually done any of the 3D effects. Wow, it's like suddenly halfway through, he'd be on string. <laughs> or there'd be like a green screen or something. It was, it was quite cool to watch, actually. That must have leaked direct from the studio. Yeah, then. it yeah. must have been. That's yeah. pretty cool. So if you want to check out that, I mean, you know, if like Joe, you are a huge fan of the Mario Brothers movie, getting another 50 minutes in your life. So was yeah, a, absolutely. Was a good thing, I guess. <laughs> now this week, Grand Theft Auto fans have been kicking off a bit. Yeah, this is really interesting. So, um, you know, we were talking about video game soundtracks and how video game soundtracks kind of changed into radio stations and commercial songs licensed songs it turns out some of these licenses are running out and you know with vice city actually happened i didn't believe i didn't know about this but um vice city they had licensing issues with a few tracks but they did it in a way that people would uh when they originally bought the game with those soundtrack, they could keep it, but then people in the future that bought it had to have those removed. Well, right. they've just done an update for San Andreas, and this update for San Andreas is pretty bad because what it does is it basically strips out quite a few songs that the licenses have already expired on. And, uh, of course, there's an unofficial patch to add the songs back in. Available, yeah. But, um, but doesn't it limit it to, like, this patch, the, origin- the one they've put out, it limits it, limits it to like two songs per radio station or something like that. It, it? it yeah. reduces it down a lot. And I, th- I think you're totally changing the atmosphere of a game. If you're, you want to listen to that tune on the radio, if you're, you know, you're replacing it. And this problem seems to be happening even more with Rockstar. So they're saying um, now GTA 4. Yeah. They're going to have to remove most of the songs from the Russian pop station Vladivostok FM. Uh, they're going to replace some of those songs with a new set and they'll update customers in the future. But I don't know, it just seems weird to me because some of those soundtracks were so legendary that they came out on CDs themselves. There were uh, GTA, Vice City releases on CD, San Andreas and GTA 4. We're talking about San Andreas. I mean, Vice City to me was always a game I put on just listen to the soundtrack. Yeah. So I love that 80s soundtrack anyway. But San Andreas was more like a... Hip hop kind of yeah. Well, they like said there was a lot of um, stuff like that on it, wasn't there? Yeah, there was some country ones as well. But the stuff from Vice City was like a lot of the Michael Jackson stuff and yeah. stuff. So. That's interesting though, because I guess you know if you bought that game obviously on the PlayStation back in the day, you know, on your PS2 or your Xbox, they can't remove it because it's pressed to a disc and that's it. Yeah. But now this affects a PC version. Steam, yeah. yeah so Steam. they rolled out the update on the Steam. mobile version as well. They okay. said they'd already done it in the mobile version. Oh, wow. I was just reading the article, and now it's the Steam version. They've I guess well. any version that they can pump yeah. an update out to. Any will. version that they're yeah. still selling, I would imagine. Yeah. And yeah. on a console that's yeah. got updates supported, yeah. yeah. That is bad, though, because, like you said, it's such a big part of the game. I mean, I, I was... Because, you know, if you listen to a normal radio station in the car, it's different songs all the time. Mm. So, I mean, there is a part of that I think it's cool if they can update and put, like, maybe slightly different ones in there. But there is something about knowing what you're going to get and look at... Especially yeah. a game that old that's been around for a long time. Imagine if but, you're waiting for your one favourite tune to come yeah. up and it just it's never does. On, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, that kind of highlights a problem that back then they never expected that that was going to be sold on the internet 20 years later yeah. Yeah, so they just licensed songs for that one game 
and the licenses that are made, like, you know, back in the, the early 2000s when they were doing yeah. this, it probably was just a one-time deal. Like, oh, here's a 10-year yeah. license, 15-year license. But it's kind of like you're renting it, aren't you? You're just yeah. renting that song for that period, and then uh, we'll remove it. And then they, and then they yeah. think, oh, it's easier for us to just patch it so you can't listen to those songs anymore than renewing those licenses, I and, guess, because they don't want to put that money into it. Or they don't want to get sued either. Maybe the you know, like maybe, yeah, we don't yeah. know. Yeah, maybe they did try, and yep. you know they turn around. But I don't think that's the case. But can make such. A, I mean, if you played, you know, Crazy Taxi without the Offspring soundtrack, it just yeah. it does. Yeah, work. yeah, that that happened Weird. on a recent mobile release yeah. of it, didn't it? And it just it kind of puts you off. You feel like you're not in the same yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it can make such a big difference. So it's not a good thing when that happens. And I think going forward, I mean, I'd, I'd hope that when they're making games today, they kind of put that in the contracts that you know re-releases right, lifetime. Yeah. Like, it's a lifetime license, yeah. yeah. It can't always be easy to do, I guess so. Now, before we chat to Heather Gibson, um, this was quite an interesting story this week. You know, we've often had a lot of bad press about video games. But, you mm. know, we were talking last week about the uh, the NHS clinic where, yeah. you know, that for, for video game gaming addiction. addiction. Yeah. Let, let's talk about a positive story about video games for a change. An article here on our new scientist talking about the fact that video games could help reduce symptoms of mental health conditions. Yeah, so they're talking about kind of maybe different inputs, different ways of controlling games. So there's a a, a pair that have created a sailing game that reads your pulse. Right. So if your heart rate increases, uh, the sea becomes more stormy. Right, okay. So if you can okay. kind of slow your heart rate out, relax, it becomes a more relaxed kind of game. It's It's interesting to see how different parts of the body and different aspects of health can be used in gaming. And we've seen this a lot with the new Nintendo um, exercise. Oh, the ring thing. Ring yeah. thing, yeah, <laughs> as well. That's that's a new kind of input, isn't it? Yeah. And that, that's also measuring your heart rate and kind of measuring your reaction to it. I mean, they're talking about it here. The, these are kind of laboratory games that they've made. They're not talking about playing Friday the 13th to uh, you know, relax your mental health conditions, <laughs> I imagine. But Yeah. It, I mean, essentially, these are video games if they're talking about you know, a sailing game that you know, reads your pulse. And apparently, it says here, as your heart rate increases, the in-game sea becomes more stormy, slowing down your progress yeah. as well. So you've kind of got to you know, work out how to psychologically slow your heart yeah, rate down. Yeah, and I was going to say, and I guess you learn from that. Yeah. And then... You're thinking positive thoughts, calming your heart rate, calming down your breathing and stuff like that. So when this kind of happens in a real-life situation where you, you panicked or you feel stressed or whatever... Yeah, it, it could help people. It, yeah, you know? it helps people to think back, OK, how do I do that in the game? How do I do that right now? And also, I guess, a lot of games that we kind of play are designed to, you know, get your heart rate going, yeah. get you kind of excited we or, don't, we or don't your think, fast reactions. We don't think about they? how they could relax us, do we? So, no, yeah, no, it's interesting and, and, to see the other spectrum. And I remember in the 90s, there used to be lots of... Kind of relaxing games. You remember Tempest and the, yeah. the um, fireworks simulator yeah, yeah. as well and stuff like that. So Abe's Odyssey always relaxed me for some reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think there's a, a kind of a thing to look at here with mental health and kind mm. of the pace of gaming. Mm-hmm. We've had people get in touch with us before on Twitter talking about how, you know, listening to this show and um, you know, revisiting games from their childhood and stuff like that is actually healthy for their mental yeah. health. You know, it's it's a bit of escapism from everyday life. Yeah. That's always been a fact of video games, hasn't it? Well, it's, we yeah, had a, a great discussion about how kind of, you know, some people were saying, oh, um, talking about video games makes me, this was in our Discord, kind yeah. of maybe listening to the retro makes me feel a bit sad because I think of all the missed opportunities that I've had. And then another guy said, you know, it makes me feel sad because I used to play games with my dad before he passed away. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's there's connections yeah. with it. And then I say, oh, well, for me, gaming was an escape. So kind of talking about it now makes me happy. Yeah. And yeah, so it's it's interesting to see the kind of psychology and 
discuss these things uh, when it comes to gaming. And it's good to see some mainstream press actually praising video games for what they can do rather than just putting it down all the time like they often do. <laughs> yeah. So that's really so I'll shove that in our show notes along with everything else we talked about this week at theretrohour.com. A little plug for our Discord as well. We do, we, we chat in there most of the week. Oh, yes. Just join our Discord. Click on the Discord icon on our website. At theretrohour.com. Right then, let's get into this week's special guest joining us in the studio to get some stories about legendary games, of course. Going to be mostly about Tomb Raider. With this week's guest, Heather Gibson. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for our favourite bit of the show when we welcome on this week's special guest joining us in the studio to unearth some amazing stories about legendary games like Tomb Raider 1 and 2. Welcome to the show, Heather Gibson. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. We love it when people come in to visit us as well. So much nicer than doing it over the phone or Skype or something like that. Even they did get a bit wet getting off the train getting here, didn't you? It was a bit wet. It was a bit cold on the platforms, but it's been worth the journey. <laughs> well, let's make it worthwhile and get some great memories about, you know, obviously Tomb Raider as well. What a game. And Lara Croft, what a character. I know over the weekend you were actually doing um, a little event in Derby that we were at as well. Yeah. And um, you kind of hooked up with some people you hadn't seen for a long time. Yeah, it was great fun. Um, hooked up with Andy Sandum, who yeah. was one of the level designers for Tomb 3 onwards at Gore. Mm. Um, Tom Scott. A uh, prolific sort of, uh, I'd say, programmer. Mm-hmm. Quite a few other interesting ex-core employees. Um, and a few pints later, <laughs> um, quite worse for wear by one in the morning. But I've got to say that the day was phenomenal. Uh, it was lovely meeting some fans from Tomb Raider and it was really nice to catch up with some of the guys that I'd worked with. Let's get a bit about your history. I mean, what kind of originally got you into video games then? Do you remember where it all started, like the attraction for games? Uh, bizarrely, um, I started at a time in the world where you could basically apply for a, a job straight from an advertisement in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky in that I was accepted at Rare Designs, basically, on an advert. Right. Um, the one thing I think that sort of maybe gave me a bit of an edge was being a woman. I'm not going to say that wasn't... Um, it wasn't anything sort of that that stopped me getting any employment. It probably helped in some way because there was the what, that sort of novelty female um, attitude at the time working in the company. But um, basically, the, the night before that I went, I went for the interview, I popped up to my new, local news agents because I knew that Rare worked in this form of art which included pixels. And I knew that the only way to put pixels into a game was sort of on graph paper or to show your art and I literally just bought some graph paper drew out a few characters on it and that's what I went to Rare with in that initial interview and mm. got the job. That's how they're all done back then though isn't it Pixel Art? But that's yeah. that's exactly what you've done I mm. think I did it on ZX Spectrum paper because that was all the news agents had but I think it was the fact that I'd just done something that was relative to the job that was available to be honest. By the sounds of things, you didn't really have much experience with gaming before that, or...? Other than playing games. Yeah. I enjoyed playing games, at Spectrum games. I was from yeah. that era, um, so I've grown up with gaming. But as far as doing graphics for games, no. I was a keen artist, though, and yeah. I actually started my career off as a nanny. Um, but that kind of bounced onto me being alongside an interior designer. And then helping her friend doing some illustrations for children's books. Yeah. So all of those little tiny um, openings in your life, yeah. they, they lead to somewhere like Rare eventually. 
That's pretty cool. So you mentioned there you've got uh, experience of interior design. Did that help with designing uh, Lara Croft's house? (laughs) Uh, It hasn't helped with designing my own house. (laughs) I I suppose it has. I mean, I could do a layout for a building, so I'd got some some idea of architecture. But no, I think they just, they pretty much knew that they needed a period dwelling. And when you'd only have to look around most stately homes in Britain to get a good idea of, of what we needed to achieve from that. Well, which titles were they working on at Rare? And kind of what was the culture like there before, years before they went 3D? Um, so, yeah, so Rare was mainly working on Nintendo titles, so a lot of licences um, and very family-orientated games. Uh, as you can I think they've pretty much stuck to that format. The only one that stood out to me as being quite a grown-up game was GoldenEye, just after we'd released Tomb Raider. Uh, but uh, certainly as an environment to work in, it was totally different to core design. Rare had a very closed um, kind of um, integrated work environment. I'm not going to say paranoid, but you certainly didn't talk about what you were working on at Rare and you didn't play other games. Um, you were very much funneled down the whole uh, family game experience and Nintendo console Um which was a huge, massive difference from going to core, where they were, had a very much more open-door policy. Um, people were playing other people's games and talking about other people's games and, you know, ideas were much easily accepted. Yeah, because everybody that we've talked from, uh, that we've talked to from Rare kind of talks about being isolated, trapped in a bar, yeah. <laughs> at, at Tricross, yeah. or kind of away from the whole world, really, even yeah. the internet. But do you know what? It'd be really easy to criticise Rare, but I, I've got to say that two life-changing moments for me was the day that Rare employed me, and ironically, the day that they made me redundant. Because while you're at Rare, you're very much brainwashed into believing you are in the best, most creative company, if not in the country, in the world. And it's not until you break that barrier, you get out of there or get pushed out there, which was what happened to me, that you realise that this country's got a massive amount of creative ability. So, I mean, you mentioned then about the redundancies and stuff at Rare. What was that kind of period like and what kind of happened there? Um, I don't know. I think it was a kinder way than sacking me, Hmm. actually, if I'm honest. Um, I think myself and Rare were sort of... I'd been there, I think, five years by that stage. Um, I wasn't very well paid. There were people starting the company that were getting paid more than me for doing less than me. Never you know good. what I mean? Yeah. That's never a good thing. Mm. You know, you've got the lads turning up in company cars and I was still rolling in in a V-dub beetle that mm. was falling to pieces, you know. But, as I say, it's easy to look back on that and say, well, you could get a bit bit sort of bitter about it. But I never was. I was always, I was always really proud to work in that building. And it was, as I say, it isn't until you look back that you think, crikey, why did I put up with it for so long, yeah. really? And why did they put up with me? Because I had a very different philosophy to the guys at, at Rare who, once they were in the building, were happy to knock a football around after work and and do social things with each other that were quite blokey. But I also used to like going out nightclubbing, so mm. once a month I'd do the rave scenes and I knew I couldn't go into Core on a Monday, mm. uh, sorry, Rare on a Monday morning and say I'd been raving all weekend. Yeah. Um, they were very much... a uh, tea and cake kind of nice company that 
didn't want to know people that did nasty things like that. Yeah, we've done panels with them. They're all talking about how, like, you know, a lot of the guys there would, over the weekend, they'd all hang out together and have breakfast together and stuff mm, like that. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lovely if you want that family yeah. environment. Mm. But that's the, that, that perhaps was where we differed in that I had my family at home. So you mentioned the atmosphere there at Rare. What were the changes when you went to CORE? And kind of, how did the atmosphere change? Uh, well, the atmosphere right from entering the building on my interview was totally different. You know, people were smiling, walking around, having jokes, going into each other's rooms, talking about game ideas. It was all incredibly open. Um, a good social scene as well. You know, people would meet up on a Friday night. We'd go to, back to people's houses. Just uh, the opposite, complete opposite to what I'd experienced at Rare. And was it kind of a smaller team or a bigger team? Initially, it was quite um, small teams at uh, core. Uh, in all fairness, most of the teams that I'd also worked in at Rare were small. It wasn't big teams at Rare. I mean, I'd worked on games at Rare where it was just me, myself, sorry, myself and my programmer. And another interesting thing about Core, which I found, was at Rare, everything was very programmer-driven. So you were kind of, well, this is the game we're working on and they're the graphics you've got to do. So it kind of didn't give you much in the way of being creative because you were already funneled down that one route. Whereas at Core, I found that the programmers were there to code and it was the artists that often led the games and what was created at Core. Um, and the diversity in people, I mean, I found this at Rare and at Core. You'd got personalities on the one side, the programmers who were very geeky, and then on the opposite side of that, you'd got the artists who were mental, just <laughs> usually comprehensive kids that were good good at art. Mm -hmm. um, very few of the public schoolboy types in the art department, more so in the... So it just was. It just worked so well, though, as a fusion of people. Well, you worked on a, a Mega Drive game, Skeleton Crew. Um, I did. Before, yeah, that was quite a dark yeah. game, though, wasn't it, as well? It was dark. It was... Uh, I just said that uh, to Ravi earlier, is um, not one I'm bothered about putting right. <laughs> my name to. It was a lovely little isometric game, but as with all isometric games, and especially when you try and do a shooter, it's a great idea in principle, but you try actually hitting something when you're spinning around in a circle and moving in the opposite direction <laughs> at the same time. Did it kind of get criticised for the control? I method? don't even yeah. think it, anybody noticed Skeleton right. Crew, to be honest. <laughs> I think it slipped under the radar until now, thank you very much. But that isometric kind of period, though, cause, I mean, yeah. you obviously had the stuff on the spectrum like Batman and those kind of games. Oh, yeah. It kind of went away for a bit, but that kind of brought it back, it seemed. That My of... favourite game of all time, isometric game, Cannon Fodder, yeah. those kind of games, and Sensible Soccer, all those games where it worked really, really mm. well. So... Obviously, with the uh, isometric games with, like, Skeleton Crew, they kind of had that kind of, like, faux 3D kind of games. How ready yeah. was Core for, like, the next generation of 3D gaming? Was it, was it quite well, difficult it's... or were they ready for it? No. Uh, hey, do you know what? We didn't know what was coming, mm. really. Uh, you're so driven, really, by the dev kits that you've got in front of you and the engines or the editors that you've been given. And kind of, I suppose, to some degree... The idea that was in Toby's mind of doing a 3D game began to materialise when we all got really, really familiar with programmes such as 3D Max. Yeah. And as soon as everybody got hold of that programme and you could create a 3D world, the idea to put that into a game was fairly natural. 
So anyway, Toby knocks up this phenomenal tomb. I remember it now where you've got dust motes floating in an Egyptian tomb and a sarcophagus in the middle and a light beam coming in. And I think Jez or Adrian just walked into the room and just went, wow. So that was obviously an early version of Tomb Raider. So that, yeah. that 3D mock-up, in some respects, just opened everybody's eyes that what this game could do. But implementing that from something like Max into a usable game was mind-blowing. And then, again, by chance, this guy approaches Core from Cambridge University, who is a great mathematician. I think he'd got his degree in AI, Gavin Romery. And the minute he walked into Core and took a look at what Toby was doing and had a bunch of artists that had only done 2D work, he started creating the room editor and and all of a sudden we had a tool that we could work with on the fly build a room explore the room output it immediately so we weren't waiting hours for something to be rendered in max which was the case then you know you when you hit render for your lighting in max you went away and had a chat with somebody for half an hour and came back again we were outputting it within minutes. You're trying to do every frame had to be like that, I yeah. guess, before, yeah. But also the anim editor that Paul Douglas wrote, which allowed us to create the animations for Lara, not in Max, not in a modelling package, but within his own editor, and texture that in real time, was something... Even now, it staggers me. I know people talk about Tomb Raider, a game that was groundbreaking, but for me, those two pieces of kit was something that I think were 10, 15 years ahead of themselves. Well, how far was Laura Croft kind of developed? Because uh, I've heard she was originally named Laura Cruz. And, yeah, uh, she was. How did less. they kind of develop her personality and character? Well, originally, I think that Toby had a bit of a crush on Nina Cherry. Right. So I remember his first, his very first uh, drawings being almost like a, a copy of her. But um, Royalties cashing in when she is. I know, I know. And the, and the other thing a lot of people don't realise about Lara is that a storyline developed as she's become more popular and I do remember that somewhere in Lara's profile for instance Toby had put something like and a journalist had asked well who who is who's she romantically interested in and I think his response was Brian Blessed was like the one man that Lara had a crush on. So this is what I'm saying. We kind of made it up as we went along. A lot of Lara's profile and her background, her history all came from, well, somebody's asked the question, so we better write the bit of history. And it was almost a bit jokey to begin with. Which was meant to be a bit like, you know, a proper English kind of lady, though. Was that always in there? Or was that just kind of... Uh, I think, yes. I think that from the get-go, she definitely was. Um... Uh, as far as name-wise, I think that was more for a... We we needed something that sounded less European and more British. So that was the, the quick and obvious thing to do, was just change that surname. But we always thought Lara Cruz, Laura Cruz, had a lovely ring to it. Um, it's just we wanted to make her sound a bit more British. We were proud to be British developers, so why not? How did they end up finding the voice of Lara and what were the kind of directions? Oh, gosh, do you know the story about the voice of Lara? Any, anything at all about it? Uh, little bits of her. So you do know that I did the voice of Lara in-game? 
Wow. I did not know that. <laughs> Joe, Joe, actually, Joe actually did say that. He thought you were, yeah. You, uh, you are correct, but yeah. not many people. I don't tend to. When, but I will yeah, tell when, you some funny stories about it. The other day, it. He said, oh, she's done some of the voice as yeah. well. So I thought... We're actually, we're going to play a game in a minute. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> okay, this is a really good game. Now, when I went into the recording studio with our... Um, sound effects guy he used to do the ambient sounds and the in-game sounds for Tomb Raider Martin Iverson he said well we're going we're to have to record some in-game sounds with with every intention I think of taking my voice and then replacing it with a proper actress in the game later on but it kind of never happened so anyway my voices in game if you'll remember were very limited it, it was yes mm-hmm. no and then there was the one where you have to strain to push a block Okay, so so Martin's saying to me, "You've got to make a strain sound," and he just just saying that is makes you giggle. So twenty minutes later, after I'd been picked up from a fit of, of laughter on the floor, I'm standing in front of a mic, and now I want you all to just have a go at making a strain sound. <laughs> Go on, gives you gives you best, Laura Croft. I I know which one she's on about, and it's proper like uh, like kind of noise, yes. isn't it? Yeah, yes. yeah. Because Martin actually said to me, "Well, try and think of something that you that you do that makes you strain." <laughs> <laughs> so there there's a little fact that that's the sound that I make. <laughs> are we not going to get are we not going to get a little snippet right now <laughs> when I'm pushing a block. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. I love the fact that... I think, that it... Dan, you should have a go. Come on, you didn't do it. A oh, real yeah. proper make the strain sound. <laughs> good enough. Yeah. That was actually pretty... Yeah, that was, that was pretty good, actually. <laughs> but then you'd have Martin there go, make it longer. <laughs> make it longer, you, make it louder. You can tell her practices at home. The, the one thing that I failed really badly on, though, was the scream, because I've never been a girly screamer. In mm. fact, I don't think I've ever screamed anything in my life, and my screams were really, really appalling. And I think it was that stage that they went... I think we're going to have to get a voice actress. That's great. They left it in there, though, as well. That's you know, you think a lot of the time now. I mean, I've read stories about then about you know when they'd have FMV in games and you know voice acting. It'd often be done by people who worked on the crew because you know there there wasn't the budget, so they didn't think they needed like you know. Oh no, everybody that worked on it was dragged in. I mean, actually, Judith, who did eventually do the FMV voice for Lara, was um, was the sister of one of the guys that worked at Core. Yeah. So he just said, "Well, my sister does that sort of thing. She'll come in and and, do it. and she'll record it for you." Oh wow! But yeah. it worked. It worked brilliantly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's gone down in history. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if she was even paid very. Well. I'm sure by the time we got to Lara, three, four, five, <laughs> six, seven, however many numbers, the voiceover actress were in great sort of having their demands met. Um, but you see, they're the things. They were the frills. They were sort of the yeah. icing on top for us. The FMVs. I mean, I've got to say, I'm not a big fan of FMB, FMVs. I am yeah. one of those gamers that goes, "Oh, for God's sake! I just want to get to the next skip, level." Skip, skip, skip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's not the done thing now. FMVs. There's more money goes into FMVs than there is the game. Mm. You know, people appreciate them. But ours were pretty basic. They were there just to string a storyline to give yeah. you and give you a reason just to get to the next level. Well, let's talk about you know the development of Tomb Raider because I know weirdly most people associate it obviously with the PlayStation One, but it actually came out in the Sega Saturn first, didn't it? Yeah. And I heard there was like some rush to get it out in the Saturn first. What was kind of the story there? So that's the politics behind it all. I think I can give you a small insight into it, but I think possibly one of the old producers or even somebody like Troy Horton would be able to fill you in on the full story. Um, I think there was a deal originally done on the Sega and. Uh, it was a difficult platform to work on. Uh, alongside our 
a dev kit. We had um, a programmer working on the PlayStation version and a programmer working on the Sega version sort of at the same time. Um, so the logistics of which one should have come out first or whether or not Sony nipped the margin and got and paid us more to release it on the PlayStation, I'm not 100% sure. But I certainly remember some of Toby's original artwork, uh, promotional posters. The first promotional poster that I ever saw was for the Sega and that was a hand-drawn piece of art. So, because that platform, obviously, I mean, it, it wasn't anywhere near the success that the PlayStation was, but I guess you no. know, we didn't know that at the time. Well, not yeah. nobody did. I yeah. mean, there was a lot of people in the building that were, were pretty much tossing a coin. It was like your Beta Max and VHS syndrome. It was kind of, do you know, either one of these could do it. But I think ultimately, the PlayStation platform was more geared to doing 3D mm. than. I remember hearing stories about you know developers and companies that looking like Sony. If they make hi-fi's, they're not going to get anywhere in the gaming industry. And they came along and like owned that entire thing. Yeah, a lot of the uh, levels involved a lot of puzzles in the original. You know, couple of Tomb Raiders. How did you kind of make sure that those puzzles weren't too difficult? Made sure that they they were difficult enough to keep people engaged. Did, did, yeah. did you use play testers or did you just kind of no, guerrilla style we, do it yourself? We did it ourselves. I mean, yeah. that was the thing. The output straight away was mm. a good thing to test it for. You could put something down on paper, you could put it into the game, and if it didn't work, it was easy to change. Um, and it is it, it was kind of the format in those days as well, to make the game harder as you went along. You ease somebody in on the first few levels, and then by the final level, they want to kill themselves, basically, just to get to the next save point. And we know that because people used to write to us and tell us. Um, but the thing is, we did have a fantastic... Um, a testing crew as well. So you did always get feedback. Um, it, I'll tell you the biggest transformation I found or the hardest thing to deal with was coming off PC testing, which was how we were producing the game, and then for the first time picking up a PlayStation controller to, to test the final versions. That's when it felt to me that I was a new player. Mm. And there was an awful lot of times that I thought, oh, my God, what have I made these poor people do? They've got to jump off that floating island there, do a full spin in the air, then hit the grab button within an oomph of a second. Um so there are there are a few bits that I think if if I'd have had the PlayStation controller, I would have made slightly easier. Uh, and but the irony of that is the people that got it were like delighted that they made one of the hardest jumps you could ever expect anybody to make in a game. Um, but we there was a funny story. There was a guy that wrote to to Core actually, or, or directed his letter to Gavin Romery. Uh, I, he said something like, "I am such as I'm 75 years old, Mr. Rummery. I have been playing Tomb Raider now for six months, Mr. Rummery. I haven't got long in this world, Mr. Rummery. So if you could please tell me how to get past such and such in level four, Mr. Rummery, I would be eternally grateful. And and that was another great thing about Core is we had that direct contact with the public. Mm. If people wrote letters, it got to the team. Mm. There was nothing siphoned out. Not I mean, like now in big companies where you go through red tape and probably PR departments. Well, no, and yeah, I suppose the PR departments are there to work alongside Twitter and mm. any blogs. But in those days, it came down to, I mean, even an email was fairly new. It mm. came down to a postcard or a letter uh, and they were great. Well, Tomb Raider was kind of the first use I saw of a huge amount of really detailed textures and... Um, 
you use them to build these environments. How did you choose the right textures and how did you make the colours stand out like tigers compared to the background? Right. So, so again, another thing that I'd learned to do from my 8-bit days and 16-bit days was you did a thing to a piece of art which was called anti-alias in it. So it's effectively taking one colour and putting another, another colour uh, one pixel colour and alongside that the next pixel almost blurs the one before so okay so photoshop and things like that just do it instantaneously with things like the blend tool in those days you did literally just have to sit there and pick the next colour on the spectrum or the next tone and put it next to the one before so the blend in between the tiling of the textures there did involve quite a lot of hand work to that. You were, you did have to overwork those textures and you did have to blend because they could come over as very, very pixely if all you did was take a photograph and try and apply it straight to the game. So I always say anti-aliasing helped that, but there was a bit behind it. Then on top of that, you've got the where do I get these textures from because there was no way Jeremy was going to fly us to Egypt to take a <laughs> photograph of the tomb. So this is how you did it in those days. You waited on Pipex style for about an hour for a site to come up, or you did the old-fashioned thing. You walked around town to all the bookstops and you bookshops, and you actually bought historic books with lots of pictures in from historical places. And that's effectively what we did. Me and Neil used to go up to the local bookshops. There was three in Derby that used to do second-hand books or reject books, and we'd literally come out with piles and piles of encyclopedias, books about Egypt, even penguin books. God, if there was one thing in that book and it only cost 50p, we were dragging it back to court and then we were scanning it and then once we'd scanned it we could flatten the image in photoshop tweak it anti-alias it and put it into the backgrounds but there really isn't or there isn't a lot of textures in tumor if you actually looked at the texture file you'd be surprised how few textures are there so we kind of had one standard texture of rock face or Egypt in sand and a rock face. And then you had your prettier textures, which were more to focus the player, like where the switches were or edges of temples. Well, Croft Manor, of course, um, one of the most famous areas of the Tomb Raider games. I mean, is it true that Croft Manor was based on the core building? <laughs> I don't think it was. I think we have. We, there's been a lot of speculation yeah. over Croft Manor's which house in Britain was it? I mean, it was Toby's concept. Right. Toby's concept. It was. It was pretty much put to me between me and Toby. We put together um, the Croft Manor. I think Toby did the facade, and I did the inside. Mm. And it really was I kind of let's just decorate this room that we know has got to be the playground for the the player to get used to their controls. It was a great way of doing a tutorial, though. Yeah, yeah. well, again, it was... How, how do you do it? It was a pretty mammoth task asking somebody just to drop into the game and expect to play it. I think that was something... That was um, really a, a huge insight. So whoever... I don't know who it was that decided to make that. It probably was Toby just made that decision to have a test area. It was a legendary decision, really. Yeah. So you, you didn't you didn't lock butlers in the uh, in the fridge at core then. That's, that's on number two. That didn't happen in real life. Of course, life, the butler farts as well. You do know that. <laughs> <laughs> you do, if you know the movie, then Laura doesn't take her clothes off. <laughs> so there you that's, go. That's all the myths. That was gone Joe's there. question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie. I've actually had the uh, ask her how they settled on Laura's titty size. Oh. <laughs> do you know? I was saying to Ravi while we were standing outside earlier. I got interviewed earlier this year by BBC Two, I think that was live, and the, 
I'd been pre-interviewed before that with a very nice gentleman who who does the the tea conversation of oh how are you what do you do now and how did you get into the industry so it's the kind of things that most people maybe don't want to know mm. but are interested in listening to once we get rolling but of course the radio one broadcaster that interviewed me who was a woman immediately said how do you feel about how uh, Lara <laughs> Croft was portrayed and do you think it was an awful portrayal and she was create she was a sexual beast by the end and I was like Oh, no. I'm a woman. I've got big boobs, right? I've got them too. You can't help what you're born with. You've just got to live with it, okay? There was no... I mean, on a serious note, if you look at Lara in the first two games, she was designed to be a beautiful, athletic woman, a woman that we all aspire to be. She wasn't a blonde bimbo. Yeah. You know, he could have gone down the whole yeah. sexual route with her, and he really didn't. She was the opposite, really. She was intelligent, she was athletic. Exactly. All them things that would probably be on the other side of, of the bimbo girl. But ultimately, you know, there was that conflict with marketing, which, again, has been written about in magazines and we've talked about before. But, you know, honestly, in defence of IDOS, what marketing does really well is let's focus on the subject and make people stop and look. Mm. And if there's anything better for guys to stop and look at, you tell me, mm. is, you know, Lara full spread on FMV or at the side of a bus. You know, so at that time, and we've got to say this is very time-specific, the Spice Girls were being hailed as being, you know, this revolutionary girl band. But at the end of the day, they still want on stage with a pair of shorts on and a basque, for God's sake. Mm. They weren't walking out in overalls, were they? And kind of Sony were desperate for a mascot of, well, a, yeah. of any type for the PlayStation. In some ways, Lara was a celebration, mm. I think, of female independence. Uh, that's how I looked at it anyway. Uh, Toby, at the end of the day, he had a very personal take on his creation and how that got slightly warped. But I think even he, by the end of it, could see that there was sense in what Idos had done. Well, because some people say that he left Core, kind of um, stating that he was sad, saddened and disappointed with the uh, Lara Croft sex appeal in marketing. Yeah, I think we all were. I think we all were. And what I'm saying now is on retrospect, when you look back in history, and I think the older you get, you've got to be able to do that. You've got to say, the why would why did things go that way? Um, I tried everything to convince Toby to stay, uh, but he, I think to an element there was a bit of burnout as well. I think we all felt a bit like that on the team. So it didn't take much to push any one of us over the edge. Well, with Tony not on board, I mean, were you a bit worried about, you know, Tomb Raider 2 when they said they were going to do the sequel? Was it kind of, you think, oh, he's not on board now? No, um, we we really tried to convince Toby to stay and work on Tomb Raider 2. It just wouldn't have been the same without him. But we, we, we got the tools up and running and, and just getting things like the room editor to a stable point because throughout Tomb Raider 1, we were creating levels and getting crashes. You know, I was constantly saying to Gav, oh, for God's sake, it's crashed again. I've just half built a temple, I've lost it all. You know... We got through that stage. By tomb two, the editor was actually working well. I felt that the pressure was actually off because I understood I'd got a clear idea of what I was doing at that stage. Um, but it is it is sad that to both Toby and Paul left. They were a huge contribution to Tomb Raider 1 and they were sadly missed on 2. 
so, in, in all honesty, by the end of two, we were kind of ready to say goodbye to, to Lara Croft and Tomb Raider as well. Oh, well, it definitely didn't happen, obviously. But uh, in, No, in no, the, you've dragged it all back off again now. <laughs> 20 years later, I thought I'd got away scot-free. Got, got away from her, but no, we're still still uh, knocking at the door, asking about No, Lara. it's funny, it's a very current thing. I've noticed this has only happened over the last 10 years. Uh, sorry, t- 10 years. Two years. Um, there's suddenly this resurgent interest in British gaming. Mm. And I think it, it's really, really nice. Yeah. Uh, and before I'm in a on a Zimmer frame or in a wheelchair or an old folks' home. It's kind of nice to have a bit of memory to talk about those days if people are interested in hearing about it. Well, even the fact you go to Derby now and they've got Lara Croft Way and stuff, it's like, well, you know, yeah. it's cultural icon. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, the fact that these characters change. You've only got Hollywood movies about these characters that you guys were working on. It's, I, know. Yeah. I know. We couldn't get our head around the movie. Mm. Couldn't. In fact, I can remember being a little bit disappointed that it was a movie. I was like, well, really, should be done like an FMV. This should be all animated in... What we now say CGI. Yeah. I don't think that term was around at the time. Mm. There were manga uh, movies and things like that being made, but that's how I saw yeah. the movie for Lara Croft. Reviewed better as well if they'd done that. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> I do remember that one bit where she's walking towards camera and there's the ice scape, isn't there? She's like, I'm not far. I'm just, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> well, we mentioned. Uh, I was going to say Lara Croft 2 then, <laughs> Tomb Raider 2 earlier on, and I mentioned how the uh, the tutorial of number one was absolutely absolutely legendary. Where did the idea come for Tomb Raider 2 for the absolute phenomenal legend of the butler? Where did that kind of come from? <laughs> I know, I think it was my idea to lock him into the, the freezer. Because yeah. <laughs> it just worked really I love easily. the fact he kind of came out of the freezer a bit as well, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. He did. Yeah. The Train clipping was a tiny bit off, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, oh, I think we could we could have done worse things than that, really. It was nice. It was nice. He was he was just an added character to that whole English scenario. That that's how it started off having the butler. But you could easily see he was a spin off to Lara quite early on, and that you could have an awful lot of fun with him just because he was so useless. Really, he was just there, wasn't he? Really. And his sound effects were great as well. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> you, you didn't do them too, did you? No. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Even today, if I've got like a tray of like uh, you know cups or anything, I'll rattle them a bit, and everyone knows what you're doing. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Are you, are you pleased then? Because uh, the Croft Manor is essentially part of the series now. It's been in Tomb Raider 3, Tomb Raider Legend, Tomb Raider Anniversary, and even Rise of the Tomb Raider, where she has a flashback to being a little girl yeah. and she has to scale Croft Manor. Yeah, well, you see, this is part of Lara's history, so mm. it has to be included in everything, doesn't it? Like a fancy yeah. brown glass. Unlike any of the levels. <laughs> the levels have been there, done that, but her home will always be her home, so it has to be there in her whatever game she's in. So adding vehicles it was quite a, yeah, a big step. What was the idea then? How did that kind of change the... It was the kind dynamic? of that whole, we've got to do something a bit different, else people are just going to go, oh, just rolling out the same old. So it was an easy, an easy thing to implement, well, a relatively easy thing to implement. Uh, the idea was an easy idea, but uh, the impl- implication of it in the game was a bit tricky. Yes, yeah, level design got, will have to change, yeah. Yeah, in fact, quite a lot of the time, the animation for the vehicle hadn't been finished by the time the level had been built. So all of a sudden you're given a skidoo and you're like, oh my God, I haven't made that road long enough. I keep crashing into the wall. So you quickly fly around the levels and readjust them. In fact, Gavin, we hadn't got the boat sorted out for the Venice level and I was building the Venice level. So I actually had to say to Gavin, who was coding the boat, I think that night, when you've coded the boat, you're going to have to do 
some map design, mate. I said, you're going to have to just do the route. I said, I don't, it doesn't have to be textured or anything, but just do the route, the length the boat can go to and how much of a corner it needs to turn, you know. So he did, he actually did the layout for one of the Venice levels, the boat level, and I just textured it all up and triggered it and did the juicy bits. But, yeah, that's Gav's layout because we didn't know how the boat moved. Wow. So, yeah, you just didn't have time. You've got to remember, yeah. we only had one year from... Mm. We'd only just released Tomb 1 and then, boom, straight into Tomb 2 for a Christmas release that year. Yeah, I think that Christmas was so... It's so important in video games even now, yeah, isn't it? That money, market, yeah. yeah. And uh, it was just a kind of tweak of the original Tomb Raider engine, yeah. wasn't it? But yeah. um, it had stuff like a, a, a much easier level editor as well, which must have made your life uh, much yeah. better. It, ha- it had a level editor that didn't crash as much. It still crashed, but not as much. Um, we implemented the almost the instant jump, which actually came from Stuart Atkinson, who took over the Lara Croft model, who always got frustrated with the whole go to the edge of a block, jump back to know your position, then jump to catch. Um, it was it was the perfect way to make a jump, and you could always get it right. But Stu just clicked that there was another way of doing that from an almost an instant jump. She would snap to position. So Tomb Raider 2 ended up actually being a you know, bigger success than Tomb Raider 1. It was actually my first experience of Tomb Raider. Was that like a relief for you guys and the guys at Core when that was bigger or was that kind of expected? I don't know with sales figures. We kind of kept our heads down so I'm not, so I'm not sure if it was bigger. But, oh, okay. it's, but it's nice. But I think the thing is the, the buzzword was out there that she'd already kind of made her place in the market. So there's that possibility that people were just waiting for that next game. I mean, I'd be interested to look back, say, to the original Call of Duty games, which I remember the original Call of Duty game on PlayStation. I cried. I actually wept when I landed. I think it was on the Dunkirk beaches or somewhere mm. like that. And um, I don't know. To me, that that was like something I'll never forget was experience in that game. But we might all find that perhaps Call of Duty 2 or 3 had much bigger sales. But it doesn't mean to say that the game itself wasn't a better game. Yeah. Well, I know recently they did a, a Tomb Raider anniversary concert because the soundtrack is just absolutely yeah, amazing. Yeah, Nathan McCree. Did, did you attend it? I did, yeah. Yeah, I'm very honoured to attend that. Nathan's been working really hard. Um, um, he's been fortunate enough to be, get, be given permission by Crystal Dynamics to use his original music score and um, had a massive fan base with a lot of people that he's had to keep happy because he's used a Kickstarter campaign to get it all up and running. But the end result really was phenomenal. And again, another one of those moments, because I hadn't actually heard the Tomb Raider theme tune for 20 years, just was sitting there and actually listening to a a classical concert in, I think it was the Apollo in London, of that music sweeping over you, kind of, a tear in my eye kind of (laughs) moment. But definitely worth attending. I think they're trying to plan something. There's a little bit of a secret, maybe not. But they're trying to plan something at Derby, Darley Abbey, next year in Derby. Is the possibility if Nathan could do something there for the locals. I think he's up for it. We'd, we'd be there, wouldn't we? There. Yeah, <laughs> it really is wonderful. What he's done with the scores, amazing. I mean, you know, that was such a big part of the game as well. I mean, people often forget how important music is in games. But mm. I think, especially to look at Tomb Raider and, like, kind of the first it had and what a revolutionary era that was. I mean, you had, yeah. the, you know, the fully textured 3D graphics coming in, CD audio. And you think a couple of years before that, we were playing Mega Drive and Amiga games and I stuff. Know. And it was, you know, really I did know. such a big but, change. But again, that all came from Toby's... Mm. Um, 
passion really for movies. I mean, the thing is, Toby's passion for movies in some respects um, led to the creation of Lara Croft. He had this obsession with spaghetti westerns, Sergio Leone, that kind of big sound to a big movie, big events. And I remember that initially when Nathan started doing the music, I don't know if, if Nathan um, would agree with me on, on this, but I think that's how Toby directed him, that he wanted something much more classical than than Plinky... You know, you've got to remember, we're not that far from the days of Commodore 64 Plinky Plunky music, no, xylophone yeah. music, mm. really, and he wanted that big movie soundtrack. And also, I think it was one of the first games where they had music that was triggered by events. Definitely. So I remember, you know, it would get dramatic. The music would come on and you'd be like, right, where's the enemy? Oh, yeah. You know? Straight away, T-Rex level. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. And you were like, oh, my God. When the bear comes in the first one, it's still terrifying as well. What's going on? Yeah. And that was really, the thing is, the editor was a beautiful bit of kit for doing stuff like that. Because we were triggering, we were triggering enemies from a floor tile mm. in the editor, and we were triggering sounds from a floor tile. We knew when Lara hit that floor tile, oh. sound would play. Oh, that's floor tile. Or we knew when she entered the room, there was an ambient sound mm. for dedicated to that room. So it was something really simple for the artists to use. Now that was something that previously only a programmer would have done that. They would have set all those scenes up because we had an editor as artist and we knew our scene and we knew where our bodies were being triggered from. We could trigger the point where the music and the magic happened. Well, you're also working on their Project Eden as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, tell us a bit about that title. What was the idea behind that and how did that develop? Oh, I, think, I think we'd gone crazy by Project Eden, actually. I think we were so desperate to bog ourselves down with even more work, <laughs> we came up with Project Eden, which was actually Gav's baby. So that was a, a programmer-led game. Uh, in sort of theory, it's a four-player game, so that's put to you, and each one of the characters has their own abilities. Um but as a level designer, you try creating a game where every single character has their own specific set of abilities and they've got to get each other through a level. It caused quite a few headaches and sleepless nights, I can tell you. But, I mean, it was a beautiful game. We did everything we could to our best and it just didn't do as well as Tomb Raider. It was very kind of cyberpunky, wasn't it? It reminded yeah. me of Syndicate. The other, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in all fairness, I think we could have taken one character out of that game with one of their abilities and created a game around it. There were so many mini, mini, mini games in in Project Eden. It was frightening. For instance, I did a bit where you walked up a corridor and there was a key in a case in an old disused building and the character's usual push-button animation, instead of pushing the button, smashed the case Okay, so the key falls out of the case at that stage and falls between a crack in the floorboard. Then you get your RC, which is a little remote control uh, rover, and you activate that to go under the floorboards to collect the key to bring it back to you. Now, that was just a five-minute bit in a game that there was hundreds of little bits like that in Project Eden. But you, nobody actually got to play them because I don't <laughs> think they bought it. <laughs> well, it was meant to come out in the Dreamcast, I remember. I don't think it ever did, did it? it was, no. Uh, yeah. No, I think, I think in fairness that the, the money was on Lara at that stage. Uh, we were kind of, yeah, you, do you know what? You stay at core. You don't go at the end of Tomb Raider 2. You stay at core over there and you can work on what you like for three years. And that was kind of, it was almost like a little retirement game in some respects. Mm. Why did you eventually 
please? I fell pregnant with my daughter, so it was time for me to be a mum. I was just at that age. Um, didn't really intend on coming back because of my experience as a nanny. I kind of realised that kids actually do want to spend time with their mums. I know it's unheard of these days. <laughs> but I thought, I'm in a position financially where I can do that. And not a lot of women are these days. We're all Well, most people are struggling to pay mortgages. Both partners have to work. But I was in a position I could do it, so I wanted to do it. And timing-wise, call was kind of coming to an end then as well. So, I mean, Jeremy was already, I think, out of the building, just as I'd had Mia. Uh, Gav was running it. Um, just heart was gone out of it. I think Idos had sold on by that stage. I think it was a bit of burnout as well. A bit of burnout yeah. from the teams. Yeah. You know, when you've got teams that are trying to kill Lara mm. at the end of the game, you know it's time to pass that game on to somebody else if they want it, really. <laughs> what do you think of the legacy of Lara these days? I mean, do you play the, do you play the current games? Do you... um, I've played some of them. Um, not so much. I'll always look at reviews and I'll always do the YouTube vids if I don't have time to play them. I'm not actually um, in a position to really get stuck into a good first-person game. Mm. I do still game, but I'm very much a Xbox 10 minutes on Call of Duty. Yeah. I like the social aspect of gaming as well, so I don't like that isolated single-player experience. And I, In all fairness, if I had the choice even then, I would go for the social game, sociable game rather than mm. the... Isolated and even game. the new Lara Crofts are kind of very solo, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's great. And I think there's going to always be an audience for those people who just want to immerse themselves in that very sort of isolated way of playing. But for me, part of gaming is having a laugh online and, you know, like a majority of your listeners, mm -hmm. there's, there's no harm in saying that, that you want to have fun when you play games. And yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of strange because the latest Lara Croft games have started to turn into survival ones. I, mm. I find myself spending more time in the woods catching rabbits and <laughs> well, up you my know, bow, you know. I think they were beginning to get a little bit criticised. And so it's certainly something I'd, I'd mentioned a couple of years ago was um, they'd managed to keep this movie format with the game, but the games were very sort of linear it was almost like, yeah, you, you, you can do all these amazing things, but you have to do them in this order. Uh, kind of went away a little bit from that initial exploration feeling that we got with the original Tomb Raider. So maybe it's just that actually they're giving players the chance to explore a little more yeah. again. Well, Heather, it's been incredible getting these stories about, you know, these, these incredible games that we all grew up playing. Hope you've not bored you too much. Absolutely not, yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank right. you so much for coming in. My pleasure.